Welcome. Just what this election campaign needs. Two more people talking about it. Uh, my name is Paul Osborne. I am covering this general election from London and I am joined by the miracle of technology 200 miles away from our northern powerhouse by someone who is equally as perplexed by the goings-on of our political masters, Robert Meekin. Hello there. Hello, Paul. We've had the first debate that wasn't a debate. We've had David Cameron suddenly telling us that he's only going to serve two terms. We had a very bizarre event in the House of Commons involving a coup against the Speaker that turned out to be something of a disaster. And later on, we'll also talk to a couple of activists from UKIP who think that in five years' time, we could be living under their beneficent rule. We can be talking about properly going into serious leadership in this country in just five years' time. First of all, though, we have to talk about the debate that wasn't a debate, uh, the first of the big set-piece events before the election, David Cameron and Ed Miliband facing a studio audience, and perhaps most frightening of all, facing Kay Burley. Robert, let's do these one, one yeah. by one. David Cameron struck me as a bit nervous when Paxman was, was giving him the once-over. I thought he was surprisingly below par actually. Uh, he, did, he did look edgy. It's a pretty thankless task, as we all know, facing Jeremy Paxman. Jeremy Paxman was fairly hungry, had been out of the limelight himself for a while. It was an absolute battering. It was almost, to use a boxing analogy, almost putting up his gloves against the ropes and just ducking from side to side and hoping to get away relatively unscathed. And it, it wasn't a particularly impressive performance by Cameron. I was surprised just how below par it truly was on the night. He didn't seem to predict the kind mm. of questions that Paxman no. was going to ask. You know, he, he went for him on, particularly on poverty, on the whole issue of food banks, on the number of people on zero-hours contracts. When you think about the amount of effort they put into getting briefed for Prime Minister's yes. questions, they didn't seem to have put that much effort into briefing him for this. And you would have thought that they know it, it, it's Paxman, it, it's a standalone interview. There's going to be a big, nasty curveball heading your way pretty quickly in a Paxman interview. So I was surprised he seemed so wrong-footed by the food banks question. I'd have thought they would have known that Paxman would go on, you know, Cameron's image as a man of privilege, as a man who looks after the wealthy. Yeah, in some form, that was always going to occur. And yet again, he seemed to hesitate and struggle. He looked like he just couldn't wait to get away. Well, Ed Miliband, or, or, or Raging Ed, as we should maybe call him, decided <laughs> to take on Paxman. Yeah. I would say that you know, David Cameron was slightly worse than we expected. And to be fair to Ed Miliband, I think he was slightly better than we expected. He did go down the rather bloody route of trying to trade blows with Paxson. In fairness, I thought, I thought that Ed Miliband uh, performed reasonably well, was always going to, was always going to take, take some nasty blows, but he did at least try to make it more of a contest. Do you think that Ed had been standing, uh, looking at himself in a mm. mirror, saying, hell yes, again and again? I've got a terrible feeling that's something he's been waking up in the morning, going into the bathroom, as you say, and, and saying that to sort of, you're a tiger. Yeah, that uh, tried to g himself up for the day. I don't know if he was he was sort of rehearsing that with Mrs. Miliband, but uh, it was quite a comical moment uh, to see him try and uh, strike a sort of Wild West type tone. But he looked genuinely at that point genuinely riled and genu genuinely angry, and it was quite good to see him look that emotional, to be honest, even though it may have looked faintly ludicrous to people. They were both trying to get different things out of this, weren't they? David Cameron is the one who's got everything to lose, so he needs to look prime ministerial and in command of the situation and mm -hmm. trustworthy. Ed Miliband kind of needs to get in the game. He's still got this thing where there are an awful lot of people out there who just don't think he's up to the job of prime minister. So I suppose that idea of getting in Paxman's face, of arguing yes, his yes. point a bit more forcefully, might at least have started to turn around that perception a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, the Labour you know, strategists have this idea that the more we see of Ed over the next few weeks and we see him in these sorts of situations, the more voters will start to like him and see that he's got a bit more fire in the belly than possibly people have imagined uh, previously. But yeah, he's uh, on the image stakes, he's the man chasing, isn't he? We, we know what we're getting with Cameron. There were no surprises last night. Yes, a bit, a bit off colour perhaps as a performer, but I don't think it will have shifted people's perceptions of him particularly. Ed, on the other hand, is really chasing down that personality side of the vote. And uh, you, you could see that he, he was going out on a limb. And that's why, of course, why he tried to take on Paxman in a more open way. I wonder if the questions that the, the, the two of them got from Paxman Mm. kind of cut to the issues, that the, the, the presentational issues that they both might have. There's this idea that David Cameron doesn't really understand ordinary people because he's just too posh. Mm. And then there's this thing that, that Ed Miliband doesn't really understand ordinary people because he's just too weird. Both those caricatures are still pretty much in place. There's a, there's a school of thought that says that David Cameron is in his easiest when he's talking to real people and all the rest of it. I must admit, last night, again, I thought that looked very forced on the Prime Minister's part. I think he can only do speaking to ordinary people so far and with so much success, while Ed on the other side, he again, he looks like he comes across as a sort of fairly likeable, lightweight academic bloke when he's trying to speak to, in quotes, normal people. So it's not, it's not a strength for either of them, to be brutally honest. The questions from voters to Ed Miliband were an awful lot tougher than the ones that David Cameron mm. got. A lot more personal as well, you know. Why are you so gloomy was one of them, and, and the killer, don't yeah. you think your brother might have been able to do a better job? The caricature of David Cameron, we know, is, is critics would say, the out-of-touch, tough, friend of the wealthy, blah, blah. But I think the one that does you know, fascinate people in, uh, about uh, Ed Miliband is the brother issue. It, because it, it isn't a normal act, if you know what I mean. It's people still struggle to come to terms with how two brothers went against each other for the Labour leadership. And it's a part of uh, Ed Miliband that people still, I think, struggle to struggle to understand but of course he's now trying to turn that into a positive and saying if you think i'm a weak man look what i've been through to get to this top job look who I actually saw off to win it i mean that was what he was saying last night you think i'm not prepared to be ruthless look what i did to my own brother he doesn't say that in so many words but that's essentially what he means the likes of us commentators are all saying that we think ed miliband did better than we expected and david cameron mm. did a bit worse than we expected the snap polls on the night gave it to David Cameron, though. Why do you think that is? I think Ed was coming from quite a, a low place, as you say, in the personality stakes. While the, the view of Cameron is pretty fixed, I think there's still room for manoeuvre with, um, with Ed Miliband. And I think he's, he's, cha he's still chasing that, that, uh, that preconception of him. I, so I think there was... I think Cameron started from quite an advantage in terms of public, the public viewpoint that he's the more prime ministerial one. I do think Ed did better than people expected, but for him overnight to be seen as the, the better performer, probably that, that was too much to expect in terms of one debate. But Cameron can't afford to, to put in too many average performances. I know these TV debates only have so much importance on the overall result, but I, he did look quite rusty and you know, quite, quite reluctant to sort of engage in the process. Well, let's move on to some of the other things that have happened this week. David Cameron uh, telling the BBC at the start of the week that he, if elected again in May, would only serve a second term. He wouldn't stand for a third term. Uh, he won't go on and on and on. In the debate, he said he wouldn't go on like Mao Tse-Tung. I, yeah. I rather thought he meant somebody else. This is the thing that Tony Blair did 10 years ago that yeah. effectively disabled what he had of a third term. A complete car crash, yeah. Why on earth has David Cameron done the same thing? 
I don't believe the suggestion that he was lulled into a false sense of security in his kitchen by the BBC's James Landale. I just can't buy into that. Cameron is just too bright. He was bright. helping him make a salad. Yes, he was. I just don't think David Cameron would say something of that significance by accident or off the cuff. And I genuinely think Cameron thought, I'm a, I come across as a straightforward, no-nonsense sort of a bloke. I'll just tell it as it is. I think he called it wrong, to be brutally honest. I think he should have just been evasive and essentially said it would be absolutely wrong to take this, this forthcoming general election for granted. That is something to discuss for another day. You can't win, because I know at that side they'd say, does that mean he's going in 2017? And all the commentators would have seized on that. But I... I still think he took the wrong tack being so clear. And of course, talking about another imaginary five years, because we all know you don't serve a full term if you're going to go next time round. It just simply is impractical. He actually said during the debate, I will serve the full five yeah. years of the second term if I'm re-elected. And, and nobody can possibly believe that. You're, you're going to step down on the day you call the 2020 election and say, vote for, as yet unknown, Conservative yes. Party leader. By the way, there's a, leadership con there's a leadership contest as well as a general election campaign about to start. Yes, that's clearly, I mean, it's, it's essay absolutely nonsensical. Well, when is the first attempted coup against him going to be? Because bear in mind, yeah. you know, what did for Tony Blair was people in his own party yes. plotting against him to get him out and get Gordon Brown in. There are people in the Tory party who have not forgiven David Cameron for not winning an outright majority last time. If he doesn't win an outright majority this time, they will still be gunning for him. And now yeah. they know that there's an end point, that there's a finite end to the Cameron period in charge, yes, yes. they will start agitating from day one to, yes. to get him out as soon as possible. If it's David Cameron who's Prime Minister, which is very much in the balance presently, it will be, for argument's sake, a minority government or some sort of coalition cobbled together. It's going to look, it's going to look pretty shaky pretty quickly in terms of there'll be a lot of resentment, as you say, against Cameron for not, not winning outright. And I suspect the polls will soon, would soon turn against Prime Minister Cameron in the second term. And the pressure would be on, and it'll be a certain Boris Johnson, for instance, who I'm sure will be, you know, given free reign, be enjoying himself in the House of Commons, getting lots of media attention. Will be, a, and there'll be more and more of a clamour to say who's the sort of person we need to sort of see off, see off our opponents. Now, Boris was named by David Cameron as a possible mm. successor, along with Theresa May and George Osborne. And, and here's the thing: here's what happens if David Cameron's back in Downing Street, he reshuffles his his government. And all anybody's looking at is what's happened to those leadership contenders. Are they up? Are they down? Have yeah. they been promoted? Have they been demoted? Two of them are occupying the highest offices of state. Yes. You now can't move George Osborne or Theresa May they're, they're to a lower job. You can shuffle them around yeah. the foreign secretary or something, but you yeah. can't demote either of them having named them as possible successors. All of the people he named as possible successors are of his generation. He'd have done another five years by this point. This is all theoretical, but if, if he yeah. got to the end of that term, he would have been Tory leader for 15 years, and he's talking about people of his generation yeah. taking over again. And I think if you're someone like Sajid Javid, you're probably thinking, well, actually, it'll be my turn by that point. Yes, and he, he shouldn't be uh, ruled out next day. It'll be an interesting uh, next couple of years for him, I think, because he does have... Uh... A lot of admirers inside the party. Right now, Boris, of course, is slightly older than Cameron. Theresa May is slightly older than Cameron. George, a bit that bit younger. You, you, you'd say there's bound to be a surprise. We, we, we've learned this over the years. that You always talk about front runners to death, and then suddenly there's someone else emerges from the pack. It often can be the surprise package. Sajid so may be that person. Well, we've talked an awful lot about the Conservatives. We've talked a little bit, too, about the Labour Party. Let's uh, move on to UKIP. Some of the polls the last week or two just starting to suggest that support for UKIP is starting 
to mm. tail off a little tiny bit. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are downhearted. They're particularly interested in the places, not necessarily where they win seats at this election, because they know what a tough task that is, but they're also looking at where they come second. I caught up with a couple of UKIP's youth activists, and they told me why they joined the party. I'm Jack Duffin, I'm the chairman of UKIP's Youth Wing Young Independence, and I'm standing for Oxbridge and South Ryslip. And I'm Jamie Ross McKenzie, I'm the Wire London uh, Regional Chairman and also the PPC for West Ham in East London. I joined in May 2012. There was serious questions to be asked across a range of policies and UKIP had the straightforward answer. There's no spin, there's no mixed stories, we're straight to the point and we give the sensible answer. It was the increasing top-down approach of our governments in Westminster and Brussels. UKIP seemed to be the only party that was speaking that language of, um, of liberty. UKIP's at a disadvantage because young people maybe aren't in their education given the context to understand why these things are so important. Most people, if you stop them on the street and said UKIP to them, say, oh yeah, European immigration. And it's going to be an uphill struggle, isn't it, between now and May, to get voters to look beyond those policies. The interesting thing I see when I'm talking to other students and across the board is people know them two policies and agree with them, but they want to know more because there is it's real intrigue, obviously, where we stand the NHS. We're the only party promising £3 billion a year extra for the NHS, for frontline services. And across the board, we've got sensible policies, but it's about us getting them out there. And the more I'm out talking to people about our different policies, like £13,000 tax-free threshold. These things are going really well with voters. But let's look at London. In the European elections last year, the UK got just under 17% of the vote in London. UK-wide, 28% of the vote. There are some boroughs where you did very well, but there are some boroughs where you barely register. Uh, 5% in Hackney, 8% in Lambeth and Newham. Do you think UKIP's got a London problem? One man's problem is another man's um, opportunity. We have concentrated on um, Europe and, and immigration up till now, but those are important and contentious issues that affect public services, law, etc., etc. We've seen in Rochester how we can start to broaden it, and I think in London we've got a great opportunity where we can broaden it still. If you go to a Tory seat, yeah, we're going to take more seats from Tories. But if you go to the Labour heartlands like Hayward and Middleton, we're 617 votes away from winning. We've been slightly behind in terms of organisation and building in London, but it's more of a time thing we're building now and if we take the European election results and lay them on the GLAs and look what the results would have been we'd have got 20% of the seats on the GLA and that would have been absolutely fantastic and who would have predicted that? I spoke to someone who has been watching studying opinion polls and trends and all sorts of things for decades said London doesn't understand UKIP London is bemused by why UKIP is popular in the rest of the country and sees it as proof of how different London is from the rest of the UK there's a certain Perhaps um, there's a set in London that isn't very, uh, perhaps, um, independently minded and, and maybe receives its opinions rather than forming its own that, that would agree with that. And um, I think it's safe to say they're probably not going to support UKIP. But, I mean, on the doorstep, that's just simply not the case anymore. Historically, in every other election cycle, parties like UKIP have surges of popularity in between general elections. But then when we actually get to the point where people are thinking about who they want to run the country, it shifts more and more back to Labour and the Conservatives. Do you think you can actually sustain this at the 7th of May? Yeah, there's obviously an element of that. The first-past-the-post system is not very kind to smaller and growing and insurgent parties. Encouraging them people there's more than two choices 
it's hard and I think this is the first time really we're going into a general election where people are really happy to vote outside the old two parties but we'll see what happens I think we've got a good chance of getting 15-20% in the polls which will have massive effects for us across the country and show there's a real platform to build on It is entirely possible in a general election that you could get 15, maybe 20% share of the vote and maybe only five seats. The second place is uh, going to be key to a future UKIP victory in that we can go to the public and say, look, if you want to get rid of your Labour MP or your Conservative MP or your Liberal Democrat MP, then it's UKIP in second place. It's UKIP where you have to put your vote if you want to change. But when you, when you do wake up on the 8th of May, where, how, how well do you think UKIP will actually have done? I think this election is going to be one of the most exciting elections for, for many, many years. I'm just going to be quietly confident. I think it's going to be fantastic. This will be the general election we finally make a breakthrough. We get a handful of seats, but the really interesting thing is going to be all them seconds and the overall vote, because all them seconds become real opportunities to win seats in 2020, and then we can be talking about properly going into serious leadership of this country in just five years time so it will really show us where we're strong where we're growing and the second places will be really interesting to look at after may it sounds a little bit over the top doesn't it ukip in power by 2020 i would say so it's feasible to think that if, if ukip are still on the rise as a political force over these next few years that they could of course be in a position to, you know, to get a healthy number of seats in in 2020 but there's all sorts of factors, variable factors at play there. One, I think, crucially would be, obviously, what happens to UKIP in terms of Nigel Farage. A lot of people think Nigel Farage is the front man, is, is, their, is their key draw. Are UKIP as a party, as an entity, do they have the quality of people in there to keep that party moving? I think, B, crucially, what happens to the Conservative Party? Because whatever they say about just not being an outlet for disenfranchised Conservative voters, I, they still are to a, a big degree. And I think if the, if the Conservative Party via another leader, via new policy or whatever, can draw some of those people back. Again, UKIP may, may suffer from that. UKIP is starting to tail off a little bit, not in every poll, but in some polls. And I just wonder if this is perhaps a ray of light for the Conservative Party, because what we do know from all the studies about where the UKIP supporters come from, about half of them are disenfranchised former Tories. So if UKIP support were to drop by, say, around about a third, they fell back to, say, 10% in the opinion polls, and if half of the people who then walked away from UKIP are ex-Tories who drift mm. back to the Conservative Party, that's actually worth two, two and a half percentage points to the Tories. Which would be enormous in the, in the current scheme of things. So, yeah, that, that, that's what UKIP you know, have uh, such a major role to play in this election. People obsess about the number of seats they might or might not win. But the real story is the one you're just talking about. How much are they going to erode into that Conservative support? Because that essentially could decide the election along with obviously what's happening in Scotland. Now, one, one thing that will happen after the election, and we do now know that uh, Parliament will be back by the end of May, 27th of May is the, is the state opening, right. so that's how long they've got to sort out who's going to actually run the country. Uh, one thing they'll have to do is formally reappoint the Speaker, and this was the cause of a slightly surreal event on the last day of the parliamentary session when we suddenly had this motion that hardly anyone understood to have a secret ballot yes. for the re-election of the Speaker after the general election when the MPs returned to Westminster. Now, that all sounds very spotty and tedious and technical. Ultimately, though, Robert, this was a coup. This was a, an attempt by the front bench of the Conservative Party to get rid of John Burko. It was an old-fashioned coup, as you say, and it was not uh, Parliament's finest hour. It was, it, it really, it, 
it soon collapsed into utter farce. It, lo it, lo it looked very, very cynical. They tried to catch everyone else on the hop. There'd been a report that had been in, been in circulation for the last couple of years uh, by the Procedure Committee on how they could go about uh, future elections of the Speaker. And suddenly, this week, in the, the dying gasps of this Parliament, it's decided, uh, people are informed uh, that on Wednesday night, that there's going to be a vote on this. The suggestion being that they were hoping there were going to be a number of people already gone, and they could slip this through, and it was essentially a, a cynical device to, as a, to introduce a secret ballot which would make it far easier to remove current Speaker John Burko. It descended into a very emotional farce, but actually it was also very entertaining, not necessarily for the right reasons. Particularly William Hague, who was leader yes. of the House, it was his job to push this through. This mm. was also his very last day in the House of Commons. Here is someone who, even if you are politically the polar opposite of William Hague, you have to accept that he's a brilliant parliamentarian, superb performer at the dispatch box, possibly the best parliamentarian of this generation, mm. leaving the Commons, but in a way that saw people on both sides of the House saying that his conduct had been beneath him. Words like tawdry and grubby were being thrown mm. about. He didn't look that thrilled to be doing it. This probably isn't how William Hay wanted to go out. It was a shabby footnote. And I think it will be exactly that, a, a footnote to Hague's career. It was, a, it was an unfortunate way for, for things to end. Other powers were at work, and of course he had to be the front man for it. His heart didn't look in, in it at all, to be honest, on the day. And it, Hague looked like a man resigned to having a, taking his kicking and then thinking, well, it's almost over, I can, I can go to my my new life in writing books in my mansion in Wales after today. So he looked like, I just have to suffer this and get out. I, but it was a, an, an unfortunate, unfortunate and rather undignified way for him to have to go out after all the plaudits. Before he was Speaker, John Burko was a Conservative MP. So why are yes. the Tories like him? I've met and interviewed Burko a few times in my career and he does, he does have this habit of, he can rub up people the wrong way, to put it politely, it always has done. He's he a little pompous, uh, I think it would be fair yes, to he, say he he's a little is, pompous sometimes. He, is, he, he can be a very pompous man. Uh, he also had what has been uncharitably described by some of his Tory colleagues as his road to Damascus moment, when he was of course a fairly right-wing Tory. Then he sort of, he, he, he sort of had, has had this road to become this more moderate moderate sort of wing of the Conservative Party supporter, which people were very suspicious of at the time. He has long rubbed up a number of colleagues the wrong way. His actual election as Speaker, if you remember at the time, it was, it, there were suggestions it was a great deal of mischief on the part of the Labour Party. A number of Labour MPs supported Burko because they knew that Burko's own party, in, to a significant degree, didn't like him. See, he was never brought in as the Conservative choice in the first place. And the, and the mutual dislike between himself and Cameron is clear, is blatant, whenever you see them at PMQs together. And of course, now he's probably safer than he was before this whole nonsense started. Yes, I think he's quite fortunate for yesterday, because I don't think there's that, there's that much affection for Burko anymore. But what this was about were a number of parliamentarians who would rather have another speaker. The Burkoin resented the executive trying this cynical stitch-up and trying to make fools out of Parliament. And that's what it was about. It was, it was, it was kicking out at the, at, the, at the authority at the top end of government. That's what this was about. It wasn't really about saving Burko at all. This was about saying to the executive, you cannot try this sort of skullduggery on us. It's insulting and it's cynical. Well, we'll see what happens when they all come back at the end of May. <laughs> Before that, we've got six weeks of campaigning and then heaven only knows how long we're negotiating <laughs> afterwards. Uh, next week, of course, we have the many-headed Hydra of the seven-headed uh, oh, leaders. Can't, can't wait the, for that one. 
Yeah, that's going to be, I think it's going to be TV ratings gold. I don't know what's on the other side, but they, they might as well expect no viewers because everyone's yeah. going to be watching the big debate. Who'd want to yeah. miss seven politicians screaming at each other for two hours? Uh, yeah. We will dissect that next week. If you enjoyed the whole thing, why not pass it on to some of your friends? Why not share that now? If you didn't enjoy it, why not just keep it to yourself?